Welcome to Book Wandering with me, Anna James. I'm the author of the Pages & Co series and an arts journalist, and Book Wandering is the podcast where I talk to another writer about their most beloved children's or YA book. This episode, I spoke with C. Pam Shang. Pam is the book-along listed author of How Much of These Hills is Gold and her incredible new novel, Land of Milk and Honey, which is out now. You'll be able to tell how much I enjoyed that book by how much I kept bringing the conversation back to it. Pam's choice was A Wrinkle in Time by Madeleine Longall, first published in 1962, and it won the Newbery Medal the year after. Longall went on to write four further books about the Murray family, which we touch on as well. We chatted about world hopping and climate change, the religious elements to the story, and its refusal to sit neatly in a genre. You can find Pam's books and A Wrinkle in Time on my A Case for Books page at bookshop.org, which is linked below. And finally, before we get into the episode, just to quickly note that while the podcast is largely suitable for children, it isn't geared at younger listeners. So welcome, Pam. Thank you so much for coming on and being a guest on Book Wandering. It's lovely to have you. Thank you. I'm very excited to talk about this topic. Awesome. So, well, why don't you tell us uh, about the book that you chose and maybe about how you first encountered it when you were younger? The book I chose, it's cheating a little bit, but I've (laughs) chosen the Wrinkle in Time series, which I believe is uh, five books in total, but I think we'll be talking mostly about the first book, A Wrinkle in Time, today. Um, It's one of those books that I read so often as a child and then as a young adult that I don't have a sharp memory of my very first encounter, but I believe I was reading it in school, in elementary school, not as part of the curriculum, but as part of this kind of rewards program that they had where you could pick from a list of books that weren't on the syllabus, but you would receive some kind of points via a system. Um, And I think there was a quiz on the content (laughs) of the books as well, which now feels very strange as as a way to consume literature. Um, (laughs) Okay. And you say it, so it is one you've reread a lot. And is it one that you have gone back to in adulthood? I have. And the interesting thing about the the quintet is that the first book is um, A Wrinkle in Time is the most well-known. And in some ways, I think it's the most easily comprehensible and perhaps like a, the most simplistic. But what's interesting is that the main characters age throughout the series so that by the end, they're young adults, I believe, um, maybe even in their early 20s. And so in the in the middle of the quintet, I think, is when this really palpable sense of angst comes into the novels. Uh, One of my favorites of the series is a book called Many Waters, which could be spoken about as an unrequited romance in many ways. Um, But I I think there's something really wonderful about that, about watching these characters continue to grow and become more complex beings. Mm -hmm. And you said that whilst there wasn't sort of a sharp kind of memory of the first time you encountered it, are you able to kind of bring back any feelings from that vague period about why you think those books spoke to you so profoundly as a child? There are books about outsiders. Um, the the main character, Meg, at the beginning of the series is very much an ugly duckling in, yes. more, in more ways than one. I mean, physically, she describes herself as sort of repulsive with these thick glasses and this like untamable hair and um what I love about that is not that just that she's an outsider but she is grumpy 
about it (laughs) right she sort of like loves and hates and like resents and has a lot of anger and has temper tantrums um her mother is a really beautiful and brilliant scientist and it meg while she loves her mother is also deeply you know conflicted about the fact that her mother is beautiful and beloved and she sort of spends a lot of time bemoaning why am i such a weirdo um and there's there is something just really relatable about that um that both the main character could be an ugly duckling and not necessarily want to be just like everybody else, which is a sort of theme of the first book. And I think throughout the rest of the series as well. Um, And I think the book is also so rich in what I would now describe as telling details. Um, There's a scene very early on in the book in which the scientist's mother is cooking stew for dinner on a Bunsen burner. And there's something so perfect and just a little bit weird about that detail. And and there's that kind of attention to the strange detail, to the odd and wonderful wording that persists um, throughout all of the novels. Mm. And one of the things I really I do enjoy about doing this podcast is reading the books that people have chosen in very close proximity to the books that they have written. And I should say, this is not... I. I came to a Wrinkle in Time as an adult. It is a known book here. Um, I don't think it's quite as ubiquitous in the UK. And I only read it for the first time about five years ago because it's my best friend's favourite book, who's American. And I did a Wrinkle in Time themed baby shower for her. Um, oh, wow. So <laughs> I was really resistant to doing um, anything too weird and gendery and body for it and I was like oh, wrinkle in time and we actually had themed we had themed food we had a caterer who specializes in book themed food who did uh takes on some of the food in the play but anyway I'm uh reading your two novels actually do you know what before we get into this this might actually be a nice time to just ask you to introduce your two novels so as we kind of mention those in passing it makes sense to listeners so um would you could we talk about I think we're going to probably end up talking about both of them as we delve into ideas of home and fathers and daughters so would you be able to just introduce your two novels to us yeah my first novel how much of these hills is gold is a reimagined American western it follows two orphaned Chinese American children after their father passes away off the page um, at the very start of the book and it's this long quest for home and belonging across an inhospitable and strange landscape. And my second novel, Land of Milk and Honey, is a a book about food and sex and the end of the world. And it follows a a young Chinese-American chef who's been stranded in Europe at the beginning of the novel. And a smog, a toxic smog has descended over the world and killed the majority of food crops. So even though she's this ambitious chef, she can't really cook in the way that she's accustomed to. And so it's sort of this existential crisis about how do you find pleasure and joy and meaning at the end of the world? And she ends up going to this exclusive mountaintop community of the uber rich on the border of Italy and France, where they still have access to fresh produce and rare ingredients. Um, And there's quite a bit of, without spoiling it, sort of science fiction-y elements. And I would say maybe an interesting thing about both my novels that may be pertinent to our discussion today (laughs) is, is that I have been quite surprised and interested by the genres in which they were placed after publication. I think ah. they 
befuddle people a little little bit. Um, and I do think that the Wrinkle in Time series is one of those books that really crosses a lot of genre lines and sort of does whatever it wants to do, heedless of what it's supposed to do. Mm. And actually in the edition I have, it has a little essay at the back about its publication journey and because it was turned down by several publishers. And then even when it was sent out, the note that came with it was basically a note saying what you're just being like, kind of like a little bit of a shrug, sort of, we think this is excellent, but we don't really quite know how to describe it. It is its own thing and we hope that you like it. Um, How do you feel about, do, do you think in terms of genre when you write at all? Are you kind of content for the publishing industry to kind of do as it must do with a product that it needs to put somewhere on a shelf? Hmm, that's a great question. I certainly don't think about genre when I write. I try not to think about the outside world or other readers at all, because I think that when I have those imaginary figures in my head, I will inevitably end up sort of softening or scraping away some of the edges to make whatever I'm working on more legible to, again, an an imagined person or an imagined audience, which I don't think is healthy for the book at that stage. Um, As far as the genre that is placed on the books after publication, I do think that it's, we're in an interesting place, right? Because it's a, it's a book industry and a media industry in which people are always searching for comps, right? Comparisons, um, to sort of compare a new work to so that it can find its readers. And I have raised my eyebrows occasionally at the way that reviewers, for example, um, will come to the book with a set of expectations based on genre that the book isn't really interested in meeting um, and indeed never had an interest in <laughs> sort of writing towards. I think that this is all the way of saying that when I'm writing, there is truly like nobody else in my head. I try to keep it that way for as long as possible. And so my main objective in those first drafts is to surprise myself um, and delight myself. And I do think that with the incredible wealth of books already out there, the most reliable way to surprise and delight myself is to subvert expectations a little bit and to do that it is often helpful to pull from different different genres from science fiction from fantasy from on this reread of a of a wrinkle in time for the podcast I realized there are some religious themes in it as well that I had not picked up on in my first read about but it, it is interesting because religion is just one of the oldest mythologies right? Um, if you take the actual religious belief out of it. So it makes sense to me that that these books pull from from all these areas. There's so many things in what you just said that I want to go back to, but let's start where we ended because I did want to ask you about the religious elements because it does have a touch of the Narnia to it, coming to it as yes. an adult. Um, and I believe that, so for confession, I haven't read the whole series, but I have read about them. And um I believe that Many Waters is quite explicitly a Noah's Ark situation as well. Yeah, yeah but it's a Noah's Ark in which the angels are sort of uh, perhaps aliens, <laughs> uh, perhaps like cosmic uh, forces of good, which is sort of a, a theme that's explored throughout the series. And I thought that was just so brilliant. So I was briefly Christian for about four or five years as a child. Um, and I 
and when I left that religion, I continued being interested in Greek mythology, in Russian, you know, fairy tales, in Native American uh, creation myths. And I thought it was really brilliant and daring and quite unusual to see a children's book tackle and borrow from the Bible without being afraid to sort of mess with their prime ingredients. Um, mm. And it was this moment for me of like, yeah, why can't we draw on the Bible? I mean, I know societally why it's often <laughs> frowned upon too, but again, there's there's the power of these mythologies that are sort of circulated in our culture and that we all understand to some greater or lesser degree uh, just because we live in a originally Christian culture. I found it... I. I grew up in a um, very intense Christian community and I am always trying to kind of have to unpick how I respond to reading books because my sort of gut instinct is very uncomfortable to see it in in children's fiction. But then I think I try to sort of get myself to where you are and see it in that kind of less didactic, I suppose, state. And I mean, faith is because again, if you like you say, taking the kind of almost religious elements out of it, faith is a very kind of key part of land of milk and honey in terms of people are choosing to have to really wholeheartedly believe in certain things. Was and there is a fably, I think hopefully, I think it's fair to say a fably feel to the book. Is that was ideas of kind of faith and belief playing in your mind as you were constructing the community on the mountain and how how did you kind of play with those ideas yeah certainly i think that us all looking into the mall the future with um climate change and you know war on the horizon and the headlines constantly looking grimmer and darker every day it requires the faith to just keep moving forward to choose right. to to live and to believe in the potential of a future and whether again that faith is in a religious institution or it's in the institution of science and man-made progress or whether it's just faith in the people immediately surrounding you or faith in a company um we all need to hold on to something i think and it, that question of what do you believe in what kinds of futures do you still think are possible is one that I, I think most people grapple with on an almost daily basis. Um, and so to me, drawing on, you know, there are through lines of of some religious faith in, in Land of Milk and Honey as well. I, I suppose I use that word faith almost agnostically. Right. Um, and I really don't, I don't really judge anybody for what kind of faith they choose. I think you just have to have something. Mm -hmm. Actually, and I, um, I read a transcript of the, uh, event interview you did with Marilyn Robinson, where you kind of—I thought that was—I mean, to people listening, I would really recommend. I'll put a link in the in the the notes because that was a—I mean, it was a fascinating discussion just generally. But I, she's also someone that I have like grappled with, grappled with how I feel about her work, and sometimes I honestly struggle to just separate myself as a person from like as a barrier to being able to really do much with her book sometimes um but that's just because I just am bringing too much of my own pretty bad experiences uh and she's someone I have like such a <laughs> her books I have such a tangly relationship with them because they're obviously just so good but 
they make me feel itchy in my skin. <laughs> yeah. How did it feel for you reading A Wrinkle in Time? I think rereading it this time, I was expecting, obviously. But when I first read it, I I didn't know that it had any thing like that in it. And a lot of it is in the background. But there is a few quite explicit references. You know, when um, one of the missuses says, you know, that Jesus was one of their former fighters against the darkness. And I was just like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, but then they go on to cite who else? Michelangelo and also Marie right. Curie, right? And I think that's what I mean. It is that is quite brilliant, right? Like it's it's sort of, I suppose, either I took it from them, um, perhaps subconsciously, but this idea that these are all equal and powerful ways of faith and truth and some kind of knowledge of the world that right. is synonymous with I think love of the world because not to get too cheesy but I think this is where <laughs> ch children's literature is allowed to be cheesy and explicitly so right I would argue that one of the the theses um of of the wrinkle in time series is that the only a faith that matters is sort of love and a belief in a belief in the lovability of the world. And I think it's sort of quite subversive and clever in positing that like, yeah, maybe there is something that we might call God or angels or a higher power, but also maybe those take the form of alien creatures from other galaxies and universes with tentacles, but it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Ant Beast, what an incredible fictional yes. creation. <laughs> um, it's I, So I write children's fiction and I do find that one of the things I love about it is that I feel like I can be earnest about mm. these things. It's you have a freedom in children's fiction to be able to go there. Um, speaking of children's, so at, in How Much of These Hills is Gold, your two main characters are children for the majority of the book. And even at the end, they're sort of, you know, teenagers, young adults. Um, I find it really interesting reading adult books, you know, literary fiction about children because I think it's well, it's rarely done and it's rarely done well. And sometimes you, you know, you get these kind of slightly unsettling, precocious children who are <laughs> sort of saying things. And I do want to talk about Charles Wallace, but I, I'd love to hear about how that kind of came and finding the child, like a child voice that was written in, I, I you know, literary fiction I'm using as, you know, a, a very broad umbrella, but, you know, did you always knew you wanted to have children as your main characters? How did you kind of grapple with finding that voice that felt true to a voice of a novel that wasn't for children? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, the characters were always came to me as children. And sort of when I look back, I think that is in a way because my first novel was written for the girl and young adult I was who was grappling really deeply with these questions of identity. What does it mean to be Chinese or Chinese American in uh, in America? How does one actually find a place and a home? And what's really interesting is that as adults, oftentimes we look at children and we're like, you know, their brains are not fully formed. Their personalities are still coming into being. They're still developing the capacity to have complex emotions and thoughts. But the wild part is if you go back to your own memories of being 15 and 11 and 6, your thoughts are as complicated and developed, or you think they were, as they were as an adult, right? Your internal self 
actually doesn't feel that change. So that's a roundabout way of saying that it didn't actually feel that different to write that kind of complexity and with it darkness that I think we often expect in literary fiction more than in children's fiction. Um, I think that what having child characters allowed me to do actually was allowed me to look at the world in a sort of fresher and fiercer way because that's one of the the qualities I associate with childhood is, is that you go through the world almost with like no skin right. on your body right like everything that. that happens everything that happens feels new because it often is new everything that hits you emotionally like hits you right to your heart because you haven't developed these walls of experience and in many ways cynicism um, that protect us as adults that sort of buffer us from the possible intensity of our reactions to the world. And I think that as a literary device, especially as a way into the particular prose and the voice that I wanted in How Much of These Hills is Gold, these child narrators and the sort of brightness and fierceness with which they see the world was such a such a wonderful asset for actually creating more complexity on the page and I mean it goes back to Meg as well like what we were saying about how part of the joy of Meg is that she is grumpy and so many of her feelings are just like falling out of her all over the place I'm interested in how you if you can remember how you felt about Meg um as a child, if that shifted as you became a teenager, and if there's other characters that within the series that spoke to you more, I well perhaps linked to Many Waters because the the twins in the the main character they're sort of not even secondary they're background characters at the beginning and they're sort of almost marked as being un they're very normal they're unspecial in the first book but then yeah. they go on to get their own adventure with Noah. <laughs> Yeah, unspecial is a good way to put it. I think that as a child, I enjoyed Meg because she added dynamism to the page, but she also irritated me <laughs> at times. Like it was sort of cringy to watch her, you know, like burst out into tears and have temper tantrums at at every turn, right? You sort of like almost, <laughs> I, I think it's one of those things where uh, you it's uncomfortable to see an aspect of yourself that right. you don't like on the page it's very hard to look at um so there was definitely that and I think that you know on my most recent BB to prepare for this conversation I had a more writerly appreciation for the way Meg is used as a literary I mean she's a character she doesn't feel like a literary device but if you dig into it she is a wonderful literary device that um because her emotions are so explosive she allows the the book and the other characters to have more direct conversations um which i think ties back to that earnestness that you're speaking about in children's literature and indeed i think one of my um difficulties often in a first draft when i'm writing a novel is to sort of circle around a hard conversation sometimes you're like afraid to write into the really, really difficult and emotionally gutting scenes. And that's when you think about the uses of a character like Meg, who wears her heart on her sleeve. It's fascinating, isn't it? I often find this coming back to books. You see the nuts and bolts, don't you? And you think, you see how useful certain traits or even just logistics can become in a book that are wonderful and magical as a child. And then now I'm like, oh, you know, a writing fantasy for kids. I'm like, you know, 
magical transportation is a delight, mm-hmm. but it's also <laughs> really useful to just have something that can get people from place to place in a magical land. And you sort of, you see behind the curtain a bit, don't you, after you've written, after you've written something. Yeah. And that's actually something like a little bit magical that perhaps I drew on from A Wrinkle in Time is um, where they're explaining the Tesseract, right? The magical or scientific dimensional <laughs> teleportation there's actually like little line drawings in the book that explain oh, the concept. Oh, there's not in mine. That makes me, I'm going to oh. have to find an edition that has that. Mine is just text. How sad for me. That's <laughs> so interesting. So yeah, it's in that scene when um, one of the misses is explaining yeah, the, the tesser with the cloth. And so there's like a little line drawing of like a, a cloth with like an ant. And then she brings her fingers together and the cloth folds in. Um, that's really fascinating. But anyways, this is all to say I have a couple of like very small line drawings to describe travel and how much of these hills is gold and I'm sure that somewhere in the back of my mind I was like thinking about instances of books that had not that had found a way to use images to just explain a concept quickly. Speaking of um, homages that I was curious as to if they were kind of conscious or subconscious one thing I did think about when I was reading A Wrinkle in Time is uh, that I've written it down to make sure I get it right. In A Wrinkle in Time, at one point Meg says, father, what is a father? And I went in How Much These Hills is Gold, the home, what makes a home, and variations of that is a real motif for Lucy and Sam. Is that a coincidence, a phrasing? Is that an homage, purposeful or subconscious, do you think? Or is that just kind of one of those beautiful serendipities of writing and reading? It's probably a beautiful serendipity. Um, I don't remember consciously lifting sort of the structure of that question from the books, but I do think something that's interesting about A Recall in Time is it constantly questions the definitions of, well, of everything, yeah. right? Um, certainly of like, what is a father? Uh, we've talked already about how questions definitions of like, what is God or an angel or a higher power? Um, but when I was rereading it this time, I noticed this even stronger question about almost the purpose of language itself. Um, how much can we articulate to one another with words? And there are so many instances in which the human children speaking to these, whatever, these powerful interdimensional beings are constantly being, you know, uh, gently chided about the limits of like stupid human language and like how much we just can't grasp anything Mm -hmm. um and I think one of the earliest references to God that sort of like made me sit back this time is when um the children have been you know teleported away to the first of their other planets and it's like this beautiful place with these magical like mythical winged creatures flying around and they're singing um and they ask for a translation of the song and at first the missus who's transporting them is like it's impossible you just can't put it into words it's impossible i'm not even going to try and sort of after a lot of coaxing she finally attempts to put words and we know the words are inadequate and they end up some of the words end up being about god um but you're also told right before that but that it isn't actually about god it's just sort of our limited interpretation of it um and uh, yeah i just continue i think to be fascinated by the limits of language and communication and certainly communication between not just cultures but between 
uh, generations within the same family, which I also think goes back to that moment you were mentioning um, when Meg questions what what is a father, because more than the the syntax of the phrase, what I picked up on was that moment in which you as a child realize that your parents are fallible, that your parents don't have all the answers, that they are not these um, omniscient, right, creatures that uh, can can see and do everything for you. Right. And also that they are kind of people with an interiority of their own. I thought it was interesting in A Wrinkle in Time, um, there's a moment quite near the beginning when Meg kind of gets close to realize, like her mom says that she's still a young woman and that she misses their father very much. And there's these allusions to her mother and father as as real people who love each other and, and desire each other. And Meg is sort of just starting to kind of see them as people distinct from her. And I I thought that was, it's it's just, it's small drips of it in the book, but it is there even beyond the sort of, her, the big themes of her having to grapple with who her father is. I thought that was fascinating and I guess so much of, it feels like a lot of your work and especially how much of These Hills is Gold, you know, is Lucy in particular, I think, grappling with who her parents were. Uh, I, I, you can, spoilers, it's an, you know, it came out a couple of years, but, you know, particularly her mother kind of learning who her mother was as a real person aside from her. Um, yeah, I guess <laughs> this is the worst quote. I'm terrible interviewing to be like, what do you think about that? But it's just, it was interesting reading them next to each other and just these ideas of children and one being a children's book and one being a, a book, a not, the, not the opposite of a children's book, but about children. And I guess it's just interesting, the idea of us as children, children characters learning about our pe- parents as people and how the book, books for children in particular, explore that. Yeah, and this is, again, one of those beautiful um, triumphs of children's literature where you can just have people magically teleport. Um, <laughs> right. But I, I think one of those changes in perspective that I remember from A Wrinkle in Time is when the, there's this moment in which the children are on this beautiful other planet and they ask this medium to effectively look into like, you know, a sciencey version of her crystal ball and they want to see their mother on Earth. And you know, it's, it's a magical perspective. You zoom in through the planet and they see their mother, I think, writing a letter to their missing father. And there's a description of how their mother allows herself in that private moment to slump into sadness and despair, which she obviously doesn't make visible to her children. And I'm like, that's the power and magic of a children's book. They can use this magical device to give children a different perspective on their parents. Whereas in, uh, you know, literary fiction, often you have to look for sort of more prosaic and more difficult ways to do it, right? Right. Um, It's a, you wish you could have that magical, perfect, transparent understanding of what your parents were like in public, what kind of um, histories they have, what kind of griefs and loves that they have without you. Um, And so perhaps that's, that's the actual difference or one of the possible differences between the children's literature approach and the adult literary fiction approach is that you can just kind of like cut straight to the heart of the matter. Mm. And actually talking to the medium because the medium is the, is called the happy medium. Yes. It's just such a delightful touch. And actually when you're talking about, you know, the first draft has to delight you. I think I always enjoy reading any book 
when you feel like you can feel the the moments where the writer was giving themselves delight and I feel like the happy medium in this book of big concepts and ideas um and also because the first line is it was a dark and stormy night and even just that like immediately (laughs) having that playfulness and that this is like taking that cliche head on is just it's delightful okay this is a slightly tangent question I'm always interested are you uh superstitious about first lines do you like to have that set as you go does it do you are they symbolic to you that they are well doing anything in particular that they're beautiful or they set out what you're trying to say or is it you're not you're more relaxed about them (laughs) I think first voice is more important to me than first lines like it's of course it's wonderful and a boon if your first line ends up perfect and it makes its way to the final draft um but I think that what the first line is doing in terms of voice is far more important and if I can keep that voice sort of sharp and clear to me that's more important than the actual content of the sentences and the paragraphs sure sure Oh, going from beginnings to endings, I don't want to do um, too many explicit spoilers, obviously, for your book, which is new, but I'm hoping you're happy to talk about it in a sort of broad-ish sense. Of course. <laughs> um, and this goes back to what I was saying about how, you know, in A Wrinkle in Time, like, love is the thing that saves them and is the greatest force. And I think, uh, hopefully, we're, you don't mind saying, so, you know, the ending of Land, Milk and Honey is has is fundamentally I think hopeful uh, I hope that's okay to yeah yeah <laughs> say and and I found myself like honestly I cried through the ending of the book I I both at the kind of hopelessness of what's come before and the hopefulness of the ending and how that tracks onto where we're at at the moment and it also was a fun because I think perhaps if you pick up a book with the the concept of the blurb perhaps as readers we've been trained to think these books are going to end a certain way and it was also just a pleasure as a reader to have something different it's always fun isn't it when a book does something that you're not expecting um I'd love to just hear about why you kind of wanted to take it in that direction Mm, that's a great question I started writing Land of Milk and Honey in the pandemic um, during a time when the world really felt drained of life and vivacity and color. And for a long time, the only things that I could read were not fiction, but biographies. I was drawn, yeah, I was drawn to the biographies of women writers and artists. And I think on a very simple level, all I craved at that moment was proof, like, proof that these women could live through long periods of heartbreak and war and strife and illness and still come out the other end many, many decades later, one, having survived, and two, having made something beautiful, not because of those times necessarily, but that is in some way of those times or perhaps of the people that they were to survive those times. And so the structure of Land of Milk and Honey is that it's a framed story. There's a prologue with the narrator as a much older woman recounting this um, transformative year in her life. And then the epilogue, which sort of picks up in, in that future. I knew I always wanted to have that framing because some of the events in the middle of the novel feel quite grim and quite <laughs> ominous and, and quite inescapable. Um 
So I, I knew I needed, I, I knew I needed to end with a future. And so for a long time, I wasn't quite sure what the shape of that future would be in the epilogue. Um, the epilogue was the part of the book that I tore up completely and wrote at least like up until almost like the second to last draft that I oh, wow. okay. handed in, the epilogue was still changing because I sort of knew the emotional place I wanted to end up in, but I wasn't quite sure what that looked like tangibly, right? And I think, yeah, there's something instructive <laughs> in that for me is that, right, optimism is a decision. It's a daily decision. And the interesting thing about it is it isn't it doesn't correspond necessarily to the tangible facts of one's life. You can choose it um, even if things are difficult, just as you can choose despair and cynicism, even if things materially look good. Um, and I say choice, I know it's not that simple because there are other factors, including all of our brain chemicals, but to some degree, it is a choice. And so it's interesting to me to find myself changing so much the tangible of what was on the page but to have that sort of emotional note remain the same until I sort of stumbled my way into the right expression of it that's such a relief to hear because I don't think I've ever started a book without I've I've had such a yeah such a similar experience of knowing the emotional place I wanted to end up and not not being able to work out what that actually looks like on the page. So it's such a such a relief to hear you say that. Yeah, I think you have to really trust at some point in writing a novel that the book is smarter than you. Right. At some point, if it's good, it takes on a true like life and intelligence of its own and you can no longer direct it. You mm -hmm. can only sort of channel it um, as best as you can. And actually, I think often the sign that it is good or working is that it starts to do that and the more you have to force it isn't it you're like <laughs> it's a bad yeah I, I absolutely agree <laughs> yeah <laughs> did you change how you felt about the climate emergency as a process of writing this book because you must have done some level of research into kind of what people are doing and preparing and science and such like yeah I did some level of research but you know to be honest a lot of that research is just reading the news for right. the last <laughs> 10 years and living in uh California and the West Coast of America for much of the last decade where wildfires blocking out the sun um, were happening for much longer than most of the rest of the world was aware of that phenomenon. Um, I think that an interesting, I'm trying to figure out how to talk about this without spoiling sure. the ending, but <laughs> one, one sort of... Mm, one sort of piece of optimism that writing this book clarified for me was as much as it is important and necessary for us as a human species to do things like divest from fossil fuels and try to not pollute the air any more than we're already doing, there is a beauty in giving way to the idea that the earth itself, the planet itself, has vast and immense powers and resources that are beyond our comprehension. So there was a version of the ending in which the sort of hopeful change in the world is a completely man-made right. thing. And that was one of the versions of the epilogues where I was like, it wasn't sitting right. I couldn't put my finger on why. And I had a friend who read this draft and pointed out to me that it felt a little bit cheap and trite and perhaps just uninteresting 
um, to have it and that way to have this sort of deus, I sort of, I say deus ex machina, but actually it comes from man. So it's not deus. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it felt disappointing to go about it this way. And the ending that is now in the book uh, arrives at a more circuitous route um, where the, uh, where the world is, saved by um i don't i don't know what how i would describe it <laughs> by chance almost and by something that comes from the planet itself mm-hmm. and i don't know there are ways of talking about this that sound like you, you're washing your hands of you know uh mankind's responsibility but it's not that at all it's just something much more complex and and huge like i do i do think that is one of the higher powers that I continue to believe in that that the planet itself, that the environment itself has this enormous capacity that has been proved many times in the past um, by, for example, the ability of Chernobyl to regreen itself um, after humans actually kind of chase themselves off that plot of land with the radioactivity there. Um, or an uh, example I love to cite is um, how ecologists reintroduce wolves back into Yellowstone National Park after they had been hunted out and were completely just astonished by all the downstream effects of bringing wolves back. Like the wolves affected the, the reindeer and the deer populations, which in turn affected the population of willows and grasses, which in turn affected beavers, which in turn affected the actual way that water systems flowed. Like there were streams that had been dry. Right, uh, just, right. Like, you know what I mean? The, the, like science understands very little, actually. <laughs> right. And it kind of linked to that. I- I'd love to end, well, I'm going to do the awkward thing of quoting yourself at you, <laughs> but <laughs> I I think just, it, it felt too perfect not to because of Meg and A Wrinkle in Time and Meg, literally, you know, the literal planet hopping, um, because the, the chef who is the main character in Land of Milk and Honey, who we don't know their name, says that she sees Ada and herself and all our possible selves and girls who step further into worlds beyond worlds beyond worlds so I'd love to just end with kind of yeah just hearing your take on girlhood and potential and love and Meg and world hopping I I think that all I want to have in life for myself for women I mean just for all people is the sense of possibility that we don't get more tired and more cynical as the years pass but continue to hold on to that childlike sense of possible wonder and astonishment and you know the worlds may not quite look like opening a wardrobe and seeing Narnia or teleporting onto a planet and seeing winged creatures fly around but that we don't have to stay stable and stuck that we can continue to imagine because I think increasingly as we look into this very dire and grim future, imagination is one of our most valuable long-term resources. Um, The ability to conceive that things may yet be different despite everything that has happened before, that we don't give up on things just because of what has been done in the past. Mm -hmm. And I mean, reading children's fiction is a 
It's yes. also a great way to remind us of that, isn't it? So uh, thank you. Um, thank you so much. You can probably tell how much uh, I loved your book by how much I've asked you questions about that rather than a wrinkle in time. <laughs> <laughs> I, so, I so enjoyed it. Thank you. Uh, and thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you. It's been a real joy. Thanks so much for listening to Book Wandering. If you enjoyed the episode, then spreading the word would be hugely appreciated by sharing it online, telling your friends or leaving a review where you're listening. You can find me at Case of Books across social media, or you can email me at annajamesauthor at gmail.com. The podcast is produced by Adam Collier with artwork by Hester Kitchen, and we'll be back next week with Jay McGuinness on Porn of Prophecy by David Eddings. Until then, happy book wandering. Mm-hmm.